Welcome to Brain Nevet. We are delighted to be rejoined by Stephen Kirshner, and we're going to be talking about the topic of abortion. Stephen, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Yeah, so I want to start with the standard case. So you have a 20-year-old college student. She's sleeping with a boyfriend. She doesn't especially like him, but she's good enough for now. And they're using contraception, but she discovers that she's pregnant. The question is, may she have an abortion? So I, I thought I would address that from a non-consequential perspective. I think there's a three-part question, and that is, does abortion infringe on the fetus's right? And here I'm going to use the fetus from the uh, point of, of conception to the point of birth. And, I, and the answer to that is no. And because there's no right infringement, it's not unjust. Why do I think there's no right infringement? Well, number one, I don't think the fetus has a right to be inside the woman. Number two, if the fetus does not have the right side to be the woman, then the woman may remove it with proportionate force. And three, proportionate force includes lethal force. So let me just briefly defend each one of these claims. Why well, think the fetus has no right to be inside the woman? Well, one, mere intercourse is not consent, right? Because that would be rape mechanics consent. It's clearly not. Nor if she used contraception, did she grant consent? In fact, she took steps to prevent the fetus from entering her body. So to use Judith Travis Thompson's case, if it's a, if it's a stuffy hot day in Philadelphia, and I open my window and I burglar bars, but they fail and some homeless individual gets into my apartment. He does not have permission to stay, even though, but for my activity, I would not have opened the opportunity for him to come in. Even if I don't put up the burglar bars, there's no invitation, right? Just because I'm negligent with regard to something happening does not mean that someone has a right to take advantage of it. So for example, I used to run in the middle of the night in Detroit. I'm undisciplined. They get my running done. People see yell at me, you're taking, you know, your life into your hands. So what if people had beat me up on the streets because I was running, you know, after midnight in Detroit, it's not like I have consented even if I took the risk. Third, even in the case of voluntary pregnancy where the woman purposely gets pregnant, you can disinvite people from your apartment. You can disinvite people from your body, right? A woman's having a party. Um, it's a great party, but then she notices her girlfriend making out with some other woman. She gets upset. She wants everyone out. She may do that. She can withdraw consent. The fetus does not have the right to be inside the woman. If the fetus does not have the right to be inside the woman. You can tell bodily invaders or property invaders to leave. Okay, that's as long as you use the disproportionate force. I think the key step is disproportionate force. I think at my own view is that's where all the action is. Here's the argument of disproportionate force. You can use lethal force to prevent rape. Right? My view is in prison. Some large man goes to rape you in prison. You can use lethal force to defend yourself against that. A body invasion in the case of pregnancy, that is an unwanted pregnancy, is as great a bodily invasion as a rape. Cover that in just a second. And if that's correct, then you could also use lethal force to prevent a body invasion. Why well, I think it's as great a, great a an invasion? Well, imagine you had a, a, a Jewish woman in a, a Nazi death camp, the Auschwitz, and uh, the Nazis give her three options. She can either be killed immediately, she can have sex with a Nazi officer, or she can carry a fetus of a Nazi couple to term. Clearly, this is involuntary, right? The sex would count as rape. And at least some women, I think, would find it plausible that it'd be better to have sex with a Nazi officer, not, not by such a standard vaginal regular sex, than carry the fetus to term. And that shows that, that the unwanted pregnancy is at least as great a body invasion that is an injustice as the rape. Thus, uh, because of that, it's, it's, you can use the same amount of force. So given that 
abortion does not infringe on the fetus's right to life. It's just, and generally, we should be allowed to do both morally and legally what's just. Okay, so I just want to start off by saying that I don't have a clearly defined position on abortion. I'm just not sure whether it's permissible or not. But I was always under the impression that the deontologist or the rights-based moral theorist thinks that abortion is wrong. And you're coming to the opposite conclusion, which is really interesting. So I just want to try and poke one or two holes in the argument. Sure. Okay. So one of them would be, I, I don't think that perhaps consent is where the line has to be drawn. You said the woman has not given consent to this child being in her body, but she has taken the risk and that might be enough. So maybe taking the risk voluntarily is sufficient, not for consent, but is sufficient to grant that child, that baby some, or that fetus rather, some, some sort of right. I like your point about taking the risk. I, I just don't think that taking the risk uh, grants someone a right. I mean, if I happen to take the risk, so let's say I go running in an area in which rapists are common, right? So it's the, the, the locality in which some, some collection of rapists live, a bunch of, a lot, lot of ex-cons live there. I, I, I do not think that I've granted permission just because I've taken the risk. Even if the risk is very high, I mean, even if I'm running in the middle of the night in Detroit and people tell me, look, you, you got to have your head examined, you're taking the risk. I, I, I don't think it, it does not grant permission. Okay. Now, now this leads to my second objection, which is that you drew an analogy between having someone in your home and having the right to tell them to leave and having the fetus in your belly and removing it. But the difference in the two cases is that when you have someone in your home and you ask them to leave, their very existence does not depend on you asking them to leave or not. They're not going to die if you push them out the door. And if we refine the case so that they would die when you push them out the door, our intuitions might change, right? So suppose the case is, I don't know if you've seen this latest series, it's fantastic, it's called Station Eleven. It's a, an apocalyptic series. It's fantastic. Love mm. Station Eleven. It's based on a novel. Um, and there's the scene where this little girl goes home with a stranger because she can't find her parents and he can't find her parents. So he takes her home and he lands up looking after her for the whole of the apocalypse. And at one point he goes home to his brother and he brings home this little girl and the brother says, so is she just staying with us now? And he says, well, yeah, because I can't get rid of her. And he says this over and over throughout the series. He says, I feel this obligation and I haven't been able to make decisions for myself for the last 10 years that I've been looking after you because I feel obligated now that you've come home with me, not under the, the, the pretense that, that you'll stay. That was never the deal. It's just circumstance has thrown us together. Yes, I said, I'll take you home, but, but I didn't consent to having you here for a long time. And I wonder if the exact same thing isn't happening in the abortion case, but we do think that he's obligated to take care of this little girl, and he seems to think so as well. Okay, so a couple of things to say here. One is, um, and I think this is, I think you make an excellent point that we can use lethal force to drive someone out of our apartment, but we can to drive them out of our body. So I guess two things to say here. One is, I think a bodily invasion is a much greater invasion, right? I can end if I have an unwanted trespasser, someone that sits and coming into my apartment. And sort of eating my Cool Ranch Doritos without my permission, I, I, I do not think that I can pull out my nine millimeter and gun the person down. And to drive him out, I don't think I can shoot him in the head and then throw his body out. That seems to be too much force. 
But I, I do think I can use that to prevent rape. I mean, if there's a group of rapists, right? Let's say from some group, the, the Crips or the Aryan Brotherhood, and they clearly intended, they announced their, their, their practice to of rape, and I can reach my nine millimeter, I think I can use lethal force. So I think one difference is that the amount of force that can be used for bodily invasion is much greater than to prevent a, a property, a, a mere trespass, or to stop a trespass from continuing. Second, I think the way you structured it, and I think your example is an excellent one, really it's being structured as a duty to save, not really as sort of a prevention of an injustice, but there's a duty to save. Now, one, I actually don't think there's a duty to save, and that's because if Jones owes me a duty to save him, then I have a claim against him, a duty just as a claim. That is, I have a right against him. If I have a right against him, that I own his body or his labor, but I don't own him, so I think there's no duty to save. But that's that's a minority view. I'm pretty confident with it, but it's a minority view. Even if there's a duty to save, the duty to save is usually qualified by some sort of reasonableness condition. You have a duty to save. You don't have to do unreasonable things to save someone. So here's an example. Imagine that man, the only way that he can stay alive is if he has a main intercourse with this, with this nurse because she has special antibodies in her body, but that's the only way to access it. Bizarre account, but imagine that's the current. And the doctor, the medical team says, well, to so the nurse, you, you know, you're, you're, because this is the only way to keep this patient alive, he's a big, fat, smelly guy. The woman's going to have to have an intercourse with him. And she says, well, well no, I really have to have a duty to stay, but I think it's pretty extensive. But this is too unreasonable invasion. And here the pregnancy is greater than what's involved in the anal intercourse of the big, fat, smelly guy. Hence, even if there were a duty to save, it wouldn't be triggered. So I want to point out another distinction. So in the, in the Nazi case that you have, you've got a malevolent um, actor. So you've got the Nazis saying, we're either going to kill you, rape you, or forcibly impregnate you. And you have a similar thing where you say you're entitled to use lethal force to ward off a malevolent rapist. I want to give you a different case. So imagine that you're standing at the bottom of a staircase and the top of a staircase is someone who is trying to cause you bodily harm. So he's running down the staircase, carrying a knife, aiming to to hurt you. Let's say maybe kill you or, or wound you. And the only way that you can get out of the situation is to shoot him. And if you shoot him, he'll fall back onto the staircase and you won't be able to cause you harm. Versus the second scenario where someone is carrying a knife and they fall, and they're tumbling down the staircase, and they're going to call you an equivalent amount of bodily harm. I think our intuition is that to shoot that person dead is less justifiable. In other words, part of why you're able to succeed is that you're trading on these cases where there's a malevolent body where we think it's justifiable to kill them, but the fetus is not a malevolent body. The fetus is a thing that's accidentally brought into the world, which will cause, as you say, an impairment on someone's bodily integrity, so much more like someone tumbling down the stairs. And the question is whether you, in that situation, should tolerate the, the harm that suffers on you or whether it's justifiable to execute that person. Excellent. I, I love the question. So my, my first answer um, is that, in fact, you are as justified. But let me, let me get to that in a second. Let's assume that you're less justified. The less justification is still sufficient to allow lawful lethal force. So kind of a famous George Fletcher case, you're in an elevator, you had a psychotic attacker. The person is not morally responsible. They're not legally responsible either. They're, they're fully psychotic. That is worthy medicated. They would never do this. And in fact, were their mindset correct, however screwed up it is, they would be justified in acting. So they are, they are not blameworthy either morally or legally. The person comes after the knife, may I shoot that person? The answer is yes. So even if there were less justification, I think you may use lethal force. 
But I, I don't, in fact, think there's less justification because I think what triggers the justification defense of violence is, in fact, just the threat, just the unjust threat. The blameworthiness um, strikes me as kind of an interesting issue with regard to punishment, perhaps compensation, things like that, but not relevant with regard to right forfeiture. So I like the question. So the short is the image correct. It's still enough justification. And second, I, I actually think they're equal justification. And I, I wonder if you think that too, Mark. I mean, if someone, if a psychotic attack were coming after you, and, and, and by the way, these are not hypothetical. I actually worked on a case just, you know, as, as a kind of a carried people briefcase, but the Staten Island Slasher, who was a really psychotic person, I actually met him, who started swinging at people with a sword on the Staten Island Ferry and actually killed two people by stabbing downward. Now, I, I'm just, I mean, I, I suspect you, you would shoot him, right, if he was coming after you with a sword? Yeah, so I think there might be a further distinction to be drawn. So you have the psychotic person, and then you have, let's say, someone who's in a different kind of involuntary state. So you can imagine the person having an epileptic fit. So the one, as you say, in the psychotic person's case, they don't bear any moral responsibility because they lack the capacity to make moral decisions. I do think we feel more justified in shooting that person. I think with the epileptic, we feel that they are themselves involuntarily swinging out with their arms or causing a danger to others, but they very much know that what they're doing is something they'd like to prevent. And I think we feel more uncomfortable with, with executing the epileptic who poses some kind of threat to us. And so again, with this, the psychotic person, I think our intuitions go, well, I, I'm not sure if we totally accept a blameworthiness in our, in our feelings about that. We see this person acting as if they had intent, acting as if they were, you know, acting in accordance with some kind of moral framework, even though we might know they're not liable. I mean, those people don't get punished, but they might get sent off to, uh, you know, psychiatric ward for the rest of their lives in a way that the epileptic, there's no consequence for them at all. We go, it was involuntary. There shall be no punishments and we don't need to put you in a psychiatric ward. It was an automaton kind of like behavior. And I think that's much more analogous to my fetus. Sure. I, I guess I'm lacking that intuition for a blind reason. It's unclear why bodily agency unconnected to blameworthiness or responsibility should matter. I mean, imagine those case. I'm in the bottom of a deep well and I have a ray gun. Scenario number one, the person is psychopathic and does what would be the right thing to do were his uh, delusional beliefs to be correct. He jumps down the well on me and I, I vaporize him with my, my ray gun. Scenario number two, someone throws him down. I mean, I, I failed to see the fact that he generated his own action, why that's relevant. It doesn't affect the degree to which he's a threat, either the, the probability of magnitude of harm, doesn't affect his blameworthiness. It doesn't affect his moral responsibility. I, it's, it's unclear sort of why mere agency should affect my rights. I, I guess I just don't see it. I, I wonder about if we make some adjustments to your case. So the one would be, we adjust when the decision is made by by the person whose condom breaks. Let's assume it's she's she's sort of wrestling with the decision, and ten minutes before she's meant to deliver, she says, "I've thought about it now, and I've now listened to Stephen, and I I want this thing out of me, and I want it dead." Are we comfortable in that case, or at some let's say point of pre viability? So as soon as it's removed from your body, it will die, but pretty late in the day. And the other one would be. A person who made a choice to invite the fetus in. So they got, let's say they got in vitro and they're in a loving relationship and their partner dies uh, or they, or they break up or they just change their mind about whether they want a kid. So there was an invitation to the guest, but they've now decided to rescind the invitation resulting in the guest's death. So it might be like you offer someone safe harbor from the cold. Um, 
You specifically invite them to your house. You say, hey, come to my place. I'm having a party. The cold then arrives. And then you sort of go, actually, you're not the kind of house guest I want. So get out. And now you're going to die in the cold. Whether we start to think that that person has forfeited their own rights in a way that doesn't allow them to forfeit the rights of the, of the guest or of the fetus. Because that's the intuition in Station Eleven, right? So in Station Eleven, he invites this girl, and and it is very cold out. She's going to freeze to death outside, and she's going to die from the plague, which is what the series is about. It seems like by inviting her in, he now can't rescind the invitation. So let me handle this. So there are two questions: What about the development of the fetus, and what about the invitation? So let me handle the development first. So so imagine a woman has a a fetus implanted in her under three scenarios. One, it's just a zygote. Second, it's a pre-viable fetus, let's say it has at four months. And then in the third case, it's a post-viability fetus, let's say at seven months. I'm not sure why it matters. I mean, it's still a severe bodily body invasion. I mean, I, I don't see it matters any more than it matters the intellectual development of the rapist. If the rapist were an orangutan rather than a fully responsible human being, I'm not sure why that would matter. I mean, bodily invasion can be driven out regardless of their level of responsibility or development. As, as far as the invitation goes, there are cases when you might think that you volunteer in a way in which you, for, you, you, you sort of waive the right to withdraw that consent. So imagine as a surgeon, you agree to operate on someone. Implicit in that, in that is that you won't halfway through, you say, hey, what's going on in the football game? Oh, you know, forget the patient. I, I got better things to do. So some of these cases, you cannot withdraw consent. But I don't see that in the case of a fetus any more than I see that with regard to intercourse. That is, it's not the content of the of the consent that the person saw, nor is it, I, I think, the way in which we should interpret it. By analogy, other bodily invasions, we do think we can withdraw consent. We can withdraw consent with regard to sex, or we can withdraw consent with regard to, let's say, with, let's say it was surgery, but you're, you know, you're fully conscious and you're watching it, and you tell the doctor, you know what, stop, even though you're, you're partially inside of me with your with your scalpel, I've decided I don't want this done. Either close me up or just let me go. But the point is, I don't want you to go any further. Standardly, with regard to bodily invasion, it seems that we should withdraw consent. I don't see any reason in terms of our actual thought content, which is what I think matters, in terms of why you can't withdraw consent in the case of pregnancy. And if someone were to think, which I don't, that we look at what's reasonable with regard to withdrawing consent, I don't see why that would be relevant for the case of pregnancy. So I think the questions are excellent, but I, I disagree that you can't withdraw consent. I, I, I don't want to get too bogged down in this because you also have some very interesting views on whether consequentialism would entail that abortion is right or wrong. Uh, we've just so far been discussing non-consequentialism, but I just want to raise one further issue. How bad is bodily invasion? I mean, when you say it that way, bodily invasion, it sounds really bad. And I, I can imagine the horror movies of, this is a trope, the unwanted pregnancy and, and this mother carrying this child to term, feeling like she has to do so for whatever reason. And the baby is a horror baby and it's an evil baby and she, she doesn't want anything to do with this. And it's the, it's the most ghastly thing that could ever happen to her, et cetera. So this, it, it's a trope and, and it's, a, it's, it's definitely understandable, that position. There is another position, the conservative position on pregnancy, which is that it's the most wonderful thing ever. And even if you didn't choose to have it, you just don't know that it's the most wonderful thing ever and you've been given this blessing and this wonderful gift. This is not my position, by the way, but I, 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 I mean, this is a position taken by pro-lifers. Um, and I'm just, I'm just curious whether your position 
it it presupposes that you can't see pregnancy as this wonderful gift, regardless of whether you chose it or not. So, so my position is independent of that. Let's, let's say that's true. Let's, let's say that, in fact, two things are true. Pregnancy is the most wonderful gift. And that for the vast majority of women, even with regard to unwanted pregnancies, it will make their lives go much better. Right. On some empirical accounts, that's true. So I, I don't see how that's relevant. I mean, imagine that a particularly wonderful thing is to have intercourse uh, with your new husband on your wedding night. And on a woman on her wedding night, she's giving this, she's this wonderful husband and this great chance for intimacy, but it's painful or she doesn't enjoy it or, or whatever. She just wants to wait one more day because they haven't known each other for a full year. Um, I, I think she may say no, no matter how wonderful touching or bonding is between them. This might be foolish. This might damage her marriage. Uh, we know marriage is extremely well be- important well, uh, to one's overall well-being. I, it doesn't really matter. You don't, you don't wave or forfeit your right just because you're exercising it foolishly. Okay, so so far we've covered why you believe that if non-consequentialism is true, in other words, if it's the case that what makes an action right or wrong is the property of the duties involved for the agents and performing that action, then it seems like abortion is uh, perfectly permissible. I want to ask you now what your view is on consequentialism. So assuming something like utilitarianism is true, where an action is right just in case it results in the best consequences for everyone involved. Assuming that kind of position on morality, would abortion then come out as permissible? Because usually people use consequentialism to support abortion. Right. And, and it's good to speak to a, to a consequentialist. Uh, so my view is um, the best view of consequentialism is um, both impersonal and totalist. By totalist, I mean we sum up the value of people's lives. I think average, the, two, the two rival views, averageism, and diminishing marginal value theory have real problems, just to quickly cover them. If averageism is true, it seems that what's intrinsically good is the relation part, the relation between people rather than one happy person. But it doesn't seem like the best world would be just to have just one happy person or one happy moment, because that would maximize the average either per individual or per time. You have other problems such as Egyptology, right? Whether my life uh, makes the world better or worse does not depend on how happy the Egyptians are. And things like the, the mere addition principle, right? The addition of happy lives seems to make the world a better place, even if it slightly lowers the average. So if you have totals, more is better, right? More happiness, more VDOGs, more utils is better. I also think that impersonal morality is true. That is, it's not the case that something is good only if it's good for someone. And the way you can see that is, imagine a world in which you had 10,000 people who are moderately happy to get 50 utils for life. But we have a much larger world, 10 billion people, each of have a 500 utils per life. Um, switching from this world to that world would not be good for anyone, but it still seems to be improvement. Or imagine there's only one overlapping person, and it is slightly better in the mediocre world than in the ecstatic world, but everyone else does much better. It's hard to believe the whole issue revolves on this one person. Personal affecting morality, the idea that somebody's good only if it's good for someone, also is intransitivity. That is, you have situations where A is better than B, B is better than C, and yet A is not better than C. So if you think that what matters is the total amount of well-being, say utils, the fact of the matter is that abortion strips utils out of the world, right? With each additional person you have, not only do you have the utils of the person who, um, or the individual who was killed, but in addition, you also lose the utils of that person's children. So you have a, a, a total. Now some people respond, well, 
maybe they wouldn't be as happy as fully wanted children. One, this, this is not obvious to me, but even if this were true, the sheer numbers will swamp the diminishment in well-being. So the fact of the matter is you just get a lot more utils if you make it more legal uh, because you're going to have more people. So David Benatar has an interesting objection to this kind of view. So he uh, takes an antinatalist view, the idea that it is better never to have been born, and takes the view that if you are pregnant, the right thing to do is to have an abortion because he thinks that the quality of lives is actually much worse than we think they are. So instead of taking the view that, that you've espoused, which is that a life will generally yield positive utility, his view is that it's in all likelihood will lead to negative utility, that the suffering will outweigh uh, the pleasure, but then also has an in principle objection to people being born, which he cashes out in this asymmetry. So he says, generally, it's the case that the presence of pleasure is good and the presence of pain is bad. Whereas he says the absence of pain is good, but the absence of pleasure is merely neutral. And on that basis says, given that being born will necessarily mean that there will be some bad things that happen to you in your life, whereas your failure to be brought into existence will mean that you will miss out on those things. It is better never to have been born in principle, but even if you didn't buy the asymmetry on the facts, your life will will yield lots of suffering. Now, he thinks that the distribution of that suffering might be towards the end. So it might be that you and I now say, but our lives are going pretty well. We're eating all this good food and enjoying meaningful uh, conversations with each other. And he says, go and chat to the people that are dying. Go and chat to the people who've got... Uh, terminal cancer, who are, are dying of diseases that we all wind up getting, the amount of suffering, the intensity of that suffering, a lot of them will say it's better never to have been born. The fact that I'm enduring all this pain means the whole thing isn't worthwhile. So so that kind of consequentialist view yields not that it's wrong to have abortions, it's that it's actually morally obligatory to have abortions. So let's take the first claim, that the quality of, of people's lives is is overall negative. Look, there's both empirical and non-empirical reasons to believe this is false. Empirically, we have empirical studies. We ask people to rate their lives, both kind of overall and by the moment, they consistently rate them reasonably high, actually. It's surprising the numbers, uh, how high they are. So by sort of any study in which we systematically ask people, how well are your lives going or how well have they gone, people tell you that their lives have gone reasonably well, in fact, strikingly well. Second, in terms of anecdotes, if you just ask most people, they seem to tell you that they, they enjoy uh, their lives. And third, in terms of revealed preferences, if you look at what decisions people make, these decisions suggest they really do think life goes well for them. You can see this in terms of how few people commit or even try suicide. And even those who try it usually are sorry they did and don't try it again. Or even people who live on, on death row, right, who are condemned by society, everyone, everyone hates them, they still fight like hell to stay alive. One explanation of why people behave in th these ways, in fact, the best explanation, is they really do think life is valuable, not per se, but because of the well-being it has in it. In terms of pleasure being a neutral, I, I just don't see how this could be correct. It seems to be intuitively good for someone to have more pleasure than not. I mean, I'm not sure how to argue that other than it just seems to be a basic intuition that pleasure is a prudential good. No, it's, the, um, it's only the absence of pleasure that he says is neutral. He says the presence of pleasure is good, presence of pain is bad, 
it's the asymmetry is in the reverse. So the absence of pain we think is good, but the absence of pleasure we think is neutral. Yes. So I, I guess I think that is not the way to look at it. If you have kind of a, a scale of well-being, the absence of pain would seem to have zero well-being. I mean, it, it's not, it doesn't make your life go better or worse. Just like the absence of pleasure would give you zero well-being. It's hard to see why you would break away from that. Benatar might be thinking this in terms of what you have duties to provide, but that's a separate issue from what in fact makes your life better or worse. So we're talking sort of overall utility level, or if you don't think it's just overall well-being level, it could be um, whether you, you know, have objective list goods or desires that are fulfilled. But it's hard to see why, by the very nature of the scale, a positive value is not good for someone, a negative value is not bad for someone, and a zero value is not neutral for someone. So I'll say a few things. The one is, I, I agree with you on the asymmetry, which in other words is that you should talk about the absence of both of those things as neutral. But then the question becomes, if not being born gives you a, a score of zero, then you have to ask the question about being born. And I've got a couple of responses on his behalf. The one is our subjective perception about how well our lives might be going could be distorted. So people have a kind of Pollyanna syndrome where they, you know, Pollyanna is this literary character where all sorts of horrible things happen to her. And she says, well, look on the bright side of life. And so even though I'm disabled, both my legs don't work, there's these other things that have happened that are good for me. He thinks that when we're comparing the quality of lives, we're doing it on the wrong standard. So he says we could have been born without all of the ailments that we have, without the possibility of death, um, without the possibility of suffering. And so we say, well, relatively in comparison to other human beings, we're doing pretty well. And he says, you can imagine if you compared yourself to some other species, imagine that there was a mole rat that was born and it sort of generally has a level of suffering and then a short period of life. You'd say, well, I'm a lot better off than the mole rat and that mole rat is probably not so good for it to have been born. And we certainly think that there's certain kinds of human beings where it'd be better never for them to have been born. So you can imagine the child that is born, it lasts a week and that entire week is just full with immense suffering. We'd say it's better for that child never to have been born. And he thinks what we're doing is comparing ourselves to the wrong standard. The other issue, as you say, with the surveys is that you tend to be talking to people who are not on death's door on those things. In other words, when you're talking to people who are generally functioning, it might be that right now we're beating the utility calc, but once we kind of get to, to the end of our lives, we won't be beating the utility calc. And so there's a distortion in the data. The other one is he thinks that death in itself is a terrible thing. If you're never born, you'll never die. And so as you point out, there's all these people trying to escape death. That's not necessarily because their lives are going well. It's because they're trying to delay this horrible thing happening to them, which is death. And so because death is so bad, they uh, non-existent, never experienced that. And so they miss out on all the negative utility associated with death. And once you add the death score in, you would get to better never to have been. Great. So lots of points. Um, in terms of not knowing how well our lives are going, I think, look, I mean, what are the only two sources of data? We have kind of our studies and we have anecdotes. Both seem to strongly support that our lives go well for, for us. Sure, maybe we should adjust the data by looking at people at the end of lives. As a side note, I, I guess I doubt, or I have no data in support of this, but I seriously doubt that they, the values would go negative. Or that anecdotally, people would say, I wish I had never existed. Perhaps I'm wrong. I just don't see it. And also, the end of life is a fairly small portion of life. I mean, if you're going to live 80 some odd years, a, a bad three months at the end hardly outweighs, you know, a good 82 years. So 
Yeah, I do think there are lives that go so poorly that in in, in some sense, and I'm a little worried about the Epicurean reasons, that life could have been, would have been better had you never been come into existence. Uh, you know, something like Tay Sachs disease, for example, or someone who suffers from absolutely devastating depression, perhaps. But those are, those are fairly rare cases. I mean, that you have those cases. The notion that it's better to never have come into existence, I, I mean, I actually doubt that's coherent because if you'd have something that, you know, in, in the actual world, let's have 100 utils in my lifetime, but in the world which I don't come to existence, there's no me there, there's no subject. And hence, it's not like I have a zero well-being level, I have no well-being. By analogy, what do I lay in Japan? Well, I'm not in Japan, I don't have any weight, zero or otherwise. So I think that runs afoul of Epicurean considerations, but I'm leaving that aside. In terms of the notion that death itself is, is a terrible thing, I, I think this is just a mistake. I mean, one way to structure that, I think life is itself good. It's a little hard to see why we would think that life itself is good. But secondly, we just have examples which seem to show this as false. If you give someone a choice between a century of ecstasy or drab eternity, drab eternity, you never die, but you only have one util per century. I, I mean, I think most people intuitively would prefer the century of ecstasy. They're not especially worried about death. But on top of that, it just doesn't seem that life, life is a good thing. It's hard to see why we would care about being alive and having consistent zero well-being levels per year as opposed to not existing. So I guess I find this intuitive, counterintuitive, both in, both in itself and in terms of thought experiments. Something that's interesting if you look at consequentialism as a base for your morality is that it seems like you can't make a blanket statement, like it will always be impermissible to abort because at least certain children will grow up to have unhappy lives. And so you would have to, you'd have to dampen the claim a bit, unless your claim is that all lives are very happy, which I don't think you'd want to claim. You might claim that most lives are very happy and then look at limiting cases like the death row inmate and say they still cling to life. It suggests that in most cases, life is very happy. It's the absolute opposite of Benatar's position. But it, you'd have to say that at least some of the time, abortion is permissible on a consequentialist view. Yes, absolutely. So I think that's absolutely right. Should you, should, would, would it be better to abort Hitler or someone who has, is going to have Tay-Sachs disease or has Tay-Sachs disease? or someone who's going to be severely depressed so much. Absolutely. I mean, I, I put in general claims, but the fact of the matter is in the vast majority of cases, abortion is wrong because it reduces the total amount of utility. So, um, and it would be wrong even on an average account if you have a happy couple, right? People who are really happy, the 20 year old in college, who in fact is normally quite a happy woman. She had her boyfriend's quite a happy person. There's reason to believe that a substantial portion of happiness, 40% on some accounts, is genetic. So even on an average account, she should not have an abortion. So, but I think you're absolutely right. Both for instrumental purposes and for people's lives who are not going well, abortion would be permissible. But again, that would be the rare case. So I want to discuss a related objection, which I've held for many, many years, which is that children are horrendous utility machines they severely reduce utility in a lot of ways. So firstly, they take tremendous amounts of resources to raise up to the point where they can produce utility in the way that their parents now can. And in certain cases, their parents are going to have their utility vastly reduced by having that child. Not in all cases. I totally agree that in some cases, children bring love and light and happiness into a, a family's life. But we can certainly imagine uh, the college student who's living a fairly decent life, in the original case that you gave, her life will be turned upside down. There'll be enormous opportunities that will be removed from her life. And and 
I think what's very important in this argument is that it's not just the utility of the being involved, the child or her, but it's their utility uh, in the sense that they can produce positive consequences in society generally. So the baby just can't. The baby can do very little good for society, but she can. This college student, she's a med student, and she could save lives. She could, she could help people. Um, now she can't go to med school. Now she has this kid who's a utility grabber. He just, he just soaks up all of her utility. And, and he's not going to be, this child's not going to be a productive member of society until he's her age. And it seems like you're just taking the utility away from her and putting it into this utility grabbing machine, and she doesn't really want it. There's no deontological issues involved, so we're not talking about rights or, or consent here, but, but it just seems like, at best, you've got a net balance of zero here. Even if the child lives a very happy life, you're removing happiness and you're removing productivity from the mother. So I, I think there's good reason to believe that it's not zero. In fact, my guess is actually it's a net gain because in some sense, parents do not seem to be sorry they had children. So in terms of how well they saw their life going, kind of kind of an overall assessment of how well their life goes, granted, they might be running together happiness and, and sort of meaningfulness, but kind of on a prude account, parents seem to be glad they had their children, suggesting that, in fact, it makes their lives go better. But even if it were to reduce a parent's happiness, in the short term, it does seem to, still, the reduction is vastly outweighed by the additional life. I mean, if a woman uh, goes from 10,000 utils to 9,000 utils, but the additional child gets 10,000, it's a net gain of 9,000 utils. So I'm not even sure that the woman actually would decrease her utils because like, like I said, most people are not sorry they had children, both anecdotally and by studies. But even if there were, I think it gets swamped. In addition, the reduction of her, her productivity, I think this is again, a sort of relatively small amount compared to the value of a child. So on some economic modeling, sort of standard economic modeling, the, the value of a life is somewhere around $10 million, right? So that's kind of roughly what we value a life at, both in terms of revealed preferences and a few other ways we have of measuring it. Now ask yourself, if a woman uh, can't go to med school, and in fact, she has to be an, an elementary school teacher, no, no, not an elementary school teacher, but just it's less preparatory time in, in med school and, and residency, things like that. It's very unlikely that her reduced gross income will go down by $10 million. And if that's correct, then it looks like it's still an economic winner in terms of having the child. So in terms of raw productivity. And, and, and for most women, the very few women have a job where sort of life and death is on the line, where they control vast amounts of resources because they manage a hedge fund, for example. So for the vast majority of women, they simply don't have enough lost productivity to make up for the loss of a life. So, but, but as you point out, it's, it's a consequence of kind. I mean, there are going to be some cases, some cases where someone's the only surgeon in, would have been the only surgeon in town in some poor town in, in the Congo. Sure. I mean, in that case, yeah, I mean, it would have been better off if she had aborted the child. But in the vast majority of cases, both in terms of the woman's life, both in terms of the fetus's life, and in terms of lost productivity, I think there's no competition. I think that the added gain per child swamps the loss of productivity and also um, swamps the loss in the woman's well-being, assuming there is any loss whatsoever, which I'm not sure of. So I wonder about this. The consequentialist tends to not draw the distinction between inaction and action, failing to do something and doing something. The question is merely, what are we going to do to maximize the good? So it might be that for the consequentialist, not only is it wrong to have an abortion, but it is morally obligatory to have further children 
up until some point where you've maximized. So let's assume, as you say, that for every kid you get, you add in 10,000 utils and you lose a thousand. And maybe when you start to have a lot of kids, there's sort of less resources. So maybe there's some sort of scaling down, but maybe it turns out that to maximize the good, every woman should basically be perpetually having kids up until she has 17 kids. And that would be the best way to maximize. And a failure to do so would be wrong. And I'd assume that a failure to do so would be as wrong as aborting because there's no distinction between the active and the passive. I love this objection. I think no, I, I think, think this, this objection is the is, objection. Is, I think this is, is outstanding because I, well, here's what the consequences say. That's not an objection. That's my theory. So here's an example. Imagine that you have a uh, a Jewish couple. So like the wife's an attorney and the husband's a physician, and and they only had two children, right? They're kind of a a yuppie couple, the, the typical like the yuppie couple, and uh, so they only let's say it's ten thousand dollars per child. So they produced 20,000 dollars, 20,000 utils, but they could have had 10 children. They could have produced 100,000 utils. Yeah, they've stripped 8,000 utils out of the world. That is a major failing. In fact, it would have been better had they had 10 children and murdered a homeless person than that they had only two children. That's incredibly destructive in terms of making the world worse. Now, some people would say, well, they didn't harm anyone. Look, a util of the util. Doesn't matter whether you strip it out of an existing <laughs> person or fail to create it. So I think, uh, Mark, I think your idea, your point is an excellent one. But again, I, I would say that's that's not an objection to consequentialism. That is consequentialism. Mark, I'm going to use this from now on. I mean, this is powerful bullet biting stuff here. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 re I really, I, I really couldn't have formed the intuition that you've just formed, but you've just leaned into it. Uh, Let me say something else. Imagine that these are to the, this Jewish, Jewish couple I'm talking about are a bunch of do-gooders, right? They're sort of the sort of do-gooder types you see walking around Cornell's campus saying they're pledging their lives to make the world a better place. Now, in terms of what would have made the world a better place, having eight more children who had um, going on to medical school rather than doing, doing something else and focusing on children, there's no question what makes the world a better place. Having the eight children would swamp whatever additional benefits they provide in law or medicine in the vast majority of cases. Now they can say, look, I don't care about making the world a better place, which is fine. But if you're going to get into this do-gooderism, then you should go all the way. By analogy, imagine someone wants to spend their time running a soup kitchen as opposed to working for a hedge fund and donating large amounts of money towards Oxfam. Well, do, do you want to feel like you're doing good or do you want to actually do good, right? Adding a hedge fund and donating large amounts to Oxfam do a lot more good than you're running a soup kitchen. And, and again, you might want to, feel good about what you're doing rather than actually doing good. But I think consequential should, I think this is true for all of us who focus, if we were to focus on making the world a better place, we're much better off focusing on having more children. Okay. So, so just to summarize where we're at here, basically you're saying that if non-consequentialism is true, then it's likely, well, not likely, you think it entails that abortion is permissible. And if consequentialism is true, it's impermissible in most cases. Okay. And you'd have an obligation to have babies. She would. So, yeah. Yeah. You need to go out there and, and have, have as many children as possible. And it's also true, in fact, that you should have children earlier rather later because the churn will increase. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so these are both counterintuitive positions that the traditional perspective is that on a deontological view, it would be impermissible to abort because you're sacrificing a life. And, and generally we use consequentialism to support the opposite position, which, which is the opposite from yours, which is that it is permissible on the consequentialist position. So 
that this isn't this is an oddity in itself i mean a really interesting oddity that you've argued well for in your work you've argued for other oddities other weird implications of the pro-life position specifically yes so i think the pro-life position generates all sorts of strange results almost none of which pro-lifers want to accept I have good friends who are pro-lifers. They seem to be horrified by these results, but they're committed to them nonetheless. And I'll just go through a few of them. One is, it seems like they're committed to the assassination of abortion doctors would be a good thing. Here's why. If you think that it would be okay to kill a Nazi executioner on the way to the death camp, let's say he specializes in dumping Zyklon B into the showers, and by shooting him, you will slow down the rate, slow the rate of execution. There's no other worker on 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 and and um, he's particularly effective it seems that a resistance group would be okay shooting him driving to work as a way of preventing the slaughter of innocent jews by analogy an abortion doctor who's doing the same thing driving to work to abort infants or if it's if you thought that fetuses were like were in fact people and it, it's applied so say the, the you're shooting a person driving you're using the same sniper rifle your intentions are the same your justification is the same defense of others the degree of responsibility of the individual is the same in both cases. So it seems that they're very parallel. Thus, if it's okay to assassinate Nazi executioners going to a death camp, the pro-lifer is committed to the view that it's okay to assassinate abortion doctors in the way they work. It's also an oddity that pro-lifers don't support the prosecution of women who had abortions who, who had abortions or were seeking abortions. Why? Because they're hiring hitmen or they've hired hitmen. Normally, when you hire or have hired hitmen, when you seek to hire hitmen or, or are hiring hitmen, we prosecute you. Now, there's an issue what we should prosecute you for, but the idea is it looks like you should be a, a prosecuted for murder. Well, well, we also think that Christians, which are not all pro-lifers, think that at least some Christians, like Catholics, think that we should be open with regard to fetuses going to heaven. Why? Because you might think a baby goes to heaven and a fetus is similar to a baby. So if a, um, if a baby goes to heaven, a fetus should go to heaven. Also, it's a little hard to see why God would be so mean-spirited as to not send fetus to heaven. I mean, what did, they, what did they ever do to him? If you thought that, then by having an abortion, a woman would guarantee that her fetus, which on the pro-life view is a child, that her child goes to heaven. Why take the risk? that your child will go to hell. I mean, if we vaccinate children against risks, this is a much greater risk, right? Hell has an infinite negative utility. Why would you ever take that risk with your child? Just a couple other paradoxes. We get very upset when people drink and smoke when they're pregnant, but we don't get upset when they take the abortion pill. Well, standardly, it's worse to kill someone than to mutilate them. And especially if you're not even mutilating, you're only taking the risk of mutilating them. Why then would we have that attitude? And then lastly, we often hear pro-lifers say, well, these zygotes and embryos, they, they, they're, they're us because they're the same organism. And you think, oh, well, do they have a soul? Well, they're not thinking, so it's a little hard how they can have a soul. So when they're talking about abortion, they're talking about animals. But when they're talking about the afterlife, people go to heaven or hell, they're talking about souls. Well, which are we? Are we animals or are we souls? We can't be both. And yeah, so I, I think those are inconsistent views. So yeah, so I think there's a, a bunch of problems here, again, with issues like shooting abortion doctors, prosecuting the women, hell and abortion, harm versus killing, 
and uh, what what exactly makes us what individuates us so i'll try and give some support to the pro-lifer and then point out a, a further oddity so the one might be that you're uh, pro-life in a very strong way in other words you believe all life is sacred and there are no circumstances when it is ever permissible to end a life in other words they're going to say you cannot go and execute the, the the Nazi worker who's going to put Zyklon B in. They'd also have to say that, in other words, self-defense, if someone is coming to kill you, that you might, it would be impermissible to kill the other person. And they might think that it would be impermissible to kill someone who, let's say, had a whole bunch of school children lined up. So you're shooting them in the head one by one, and the observer has the ability to execute the assassin. They would say, no, it's impermissible. All life is sacred and you ought not to take an active move, end this person's life, even if they themselves are ending lots of lives. So that would you know, be the extreme position that a true sanctity of life person could take. But if you think any of those other reasons are good reasons to kill, then they seem to be analogous in the abortion doctor case or the mother case. The other one that seems odd is that people will say, well, surely there should be an exemption under certain circumstances. So if you uh, were raped or if it's the product of incest, but if you take the view seriously that the child or that the fetus is a full person, we wouldn't think that that it would be okay to kill that being outside of the womb. In other words, to say, well, you are the product of incest, uh, therefore you have different rights to everyone else, we can kill you, or you are the product of rape, you can be killed. We'd think that, well, your your life matters, and if it's an equivalent life and you're an innocent party, there would be, it would be wrong to, to execute you, uh, regardless of whether you're in the room or out of the room. The womb, bracketing your your initial views on on body interference and forfeiture, but it seems to be at least the case for the person who holds the strong life position that for them to principally give these exemptions sounds odd. Yeah, so I think you make I, I think your points are excellent. Yeah, the notion that all life is sacred, as you point out, it's wildly implausible. I mean, what do you? I mean, you're committed to sort of pacifism, a very strong form. You, you can't defend yourself. Can't defend your family. You can't defend a, a bunch of school children. On top of the fact, it's a little unclear what someone means when they say life is sacred. Do they mean that life is so intrinsically good that it trumps everything else? Well, that can't. That can only be true if life had sort of infinite value. That that's sort of wildly plausible. It could mean that we have an infinitely strong obligation to um, protect or promote life. It's, it's unclear why that would be the case. I mean, if we think that people have rights, they own themselves. It's unclear why you can't waive your right to your life. Um, for example, if you have an absolutely um, horrendous form of cancer, and at this point in time, your life offers you nothing but terrible suffering for the, for the remaining few weeks of it, it's, it's unclear why it would be wrong to take your life. On top of that, understood as a theory of goodness, it's just implausible. I mean, life is not intrinsically good. It's well-being that's intrinsically good. Well-being is distinct from life. Life is just the means by which uh, we get well-being. And, and I thought your other point was excellent as well. The notion that the pro-lifers often want to make exceptions with regard to incest or rape. And yeah, like how does that plan with people's rights? Do fetuses or infants or college students born of incest or rape, have they lost their rights? Well, they haven't waived them. They haven't forfeited them. So it's hard to see how that's relevant. These are oddities for the pro-life position. I, I'm curious whether you think there's equivalent oddities or equivalently serious oddities for the pro-choice position. So I think with regard to consequentialism, the, the, the pro-choice position has some, some, some 
very strong audit. He's one, as you mentioned, there's, there's a duty to reproduce. In fact, as between having eight children and murdering someone or doing neither, you, you're, you're duty bound. And in fact, it makes the world a better place to have an actual eight children and murder someone. It might, in addition, be you might have a duty to damage contraception. So imagine living in a society which has lots of contraception. Should you go poking holes in condoms? In fact, you have a duty to do these things. Should you engage in rape with regard to fertile women who otherwise are not having children? Right? Imagine that you go to some society of female medical students who are committed to not having children. Would it be permissible to engage in rape? The answer is yes. Why? Because the suffering you would cause them, which is significant and a very bad thing, would be outweighed, in fact, vastly outweighed by the value of the additional children. That is, the amount of utils lost per rape, while very serious and not to be underestimated, still are not as great as the value gained from an additional life. So yeah, I think consequentials are committed to all sorts of horrendous cases of the damaging contraception, rape, certain trade-offs, better, better to murder additional children than either. So, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I think... I think I, I think these things are true. So, yes. So as the other consequentialist in the room, I just want to I just <laughs> I just want to remove myself from those cases by saying I hold a different kind of consequentialist account where I weigh suffering as more important than pleasure. Maybe pleasure it's not that it's zero weighted, but it's less important. I also would think that the empirical claims that you make I wouldn't agree with. I lean more towards Benatar's view that life involves more suffering than you think. I also think that the kinds of arguments that you've given for why life in general is seen as a good thing and that parents in general prefer that they had children than don't, there would be arguments that would raise against each of those claims. So for example, it may be that parents prefer having had children than not having children because they're referencing some other value. Their lives are less happy in the sense that they have less pleasure but they have more meaning, for example. So it might enhance some other value, meaning in their lives or perfection in their lives because their lives are better rounded. It might increase the amount of love in their lives. These are all values that compete with happiness in many cases. And in this case, I think they do. So I would want to resist a lot of the empirical claims so that the utilitarian isn't, isn't led towards these horrendous consequences like you are morally obligated to rape fertile women and to go poking holes in condoms in bathroom stalls. So let me, let me, I've had two excellent points, but let me, let me respond to them. One is that the notion that pleasure should be weighted less seriously than pain. I, I guess I just think that pain just is negative pleasure. So, and in particular, here's what I think a pleasure is and what pain is. I think it's the experience of, of an intrinsic desire satisfaction. So given that, I don't see why they don't operate in a symmetrical manner. So I, I don't see why it operates theoretically, and I don't see why it operates in terms of practical considerations. In terms of the notion that really what parents, the reason they, they like having children or want to have more children is because it makes their lives more meaningful, even though it doesn't give them greater happiness. I guess what I'm interested is in well-being. Happiness, as we know, gets used in different ways in terms of pleasure or well-being. Let's talk about well-being. Despite the way some people structure, I do think meaningfulness, if it is a legitimate property, and I have my doubts, it is a contributor to well-being. So if it makes parents' lives much more meaningful, I think necessarily it makes their lives go better in terms of well-being. Now, there, there might be other consequences that brings about that outweigh those, but I, I do not see how something which makes someone's life more meaningful does not at least 
in those terms, make a life go better. Well, we can think of some easy examples where meaning and happiness pull in opposite directions. So, so one of them would be the Mother Teresa case, cleaning bedpans all day, really, really not liking it, uh, but feeling like this is a duty and really is helping humanity and is helping others. It's highly um, meaningful activity, but makes her very unhappy. And maybe she had very low well-being while doing these things, but very meaningful life or the uh, person who gives up everything to find the cure for cancer or, or the artist who gives up his well-being and, and the relationships that he has with his family in order to pursue a different value like artistic endeavor. And, and he's a suffering artist. Uh, he hates what he does, but he, in, it, at the same time, he feels compelled and he has a calling and he's a, He's a great but suffering artist. So you can imagine well-being pulling in a different direction in certain cases uh, from these other values. And I think that might be exactly what happens when you have a child. So I have kind of the opposite view. I mean, I, I find your view highly plausible. And some of the we've worked with, you and I have both worked with, sort of hold this view. But here's a couple of reasons to think that the contrary is true. One is it looks that meaningfulness looks a lot like an objective list good, right? So a lot of people think that your life goes better independent of pleasure, desire, fulfillment, if it involves things like virtue or knowledge or autonomy. And those are just things that by themselves make their life go better. If there are sort of meaningful things, it looks a lot like an objective list good. So it's kind of odd to say we have an objective list goods, but meaningful this is not on them. So that's the first consideration. Second, if this were true, it's hard to see why anyone would have a reason to pursue a meaningful life. I mean, a meaningful life is independent of what's good simpliciter or what's good for me, it's unclear what sort of reasons would be left. So on your account where meaningfulness separates out from well-being, it seems that the, the, the price we pay is we no longer have a reason to pursue meaningfulness. So, so I guess two objectives. One is it looks a lot like an objective list could to me. And two, if it were to be to the case, we'd lose the sort of reason to have a meaningful life. So I guess that's why I disagree. But I, I think, look, even if you ask parents, right, they, I, I think a lot of parents would say, yeah, it just, in fact, makes my life happier. So at the very least, a consequence would say with regard to happy populations, right, certain populations of people are just happier. As a betting person, in those cases, we should be poking holes in condoms and things like that. Well, Stephen, I want to thank you for an enormously thought-provoking discussion. I think good philosophy is when everybody walks away feeling a little bit uncomfortable and they think, hmm, maybe I need to rethink some of my underlying assumptions. And I think we've done an enormous amount of that today and it's been absolutely delightful.